Eric Henderson of Slant Magazine calls this movie one of the most compelling validations of the Western genre's most elemental touchstones. Michael Wilmington calls it an improbable masterpiece, a bizarre mixture of grandly operatic visuals, grim brutality, and sordid violence that keeps wrenching you from one extreme to the other. And Letterboxd user Branson Reese says a lot of times I'll see a classic movie and be like, this is what everyone's going crazy for, but this was one where I was like, oh man, people are underselling it actually. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. That was an awful Clint Eastwood. Greetings, Starfighters. Uh, I'm just going to yeah. be me. I'm just going to be me. No, that was a bad choice. <laughs> yeah, I think choice. that's a good idea. We'll talk all just, things Clint Eastwood pretty soon. Maybe not all things Clint Eastwood, but some things Clint Eastwood pretty forget soon. Forget I did that. Greetings, Starfighters. <laughs> all of the Starfighters. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, this is the final film in our month of movies that have coined popular phrases such as the bucket list, the full Monty, which was redefined by the movie, the full Monty. What else did we do? Gaslight, Gaslight yeah. and then hall pass. And now here is the good, the bad and the ugly, which uh, has crept into modern vernacular. Uh, you hear it all over the place. Yeah, we don't even it's, you know, whenever it's kind of like a good news, bad news type thing. And it's, yeah. you know, it's used in so many different uh, it's used in so many different contexts and it's ad- adapted to different things. There's even like the good, the, the movie, the good, the bad and the weird. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. And it's and it's so interesting that this one really stuck. But uh We'll we'll come to that pretty soon. Dan, I don't have any news bits or one more things about Hall Pass or anything. Uh, do you have anything that you wanted to bring up? I mean, we're recording this on, what is it, Wednesday the 24th, and allegedly there might be some sort of news about a Last Starfighter sequel stuff. We are on high maybe alert. tomorrow. We are on high alert for some Last Starfighter news. And yeah, speaking of greeting starfighters. Yeah. So, of course, if you've been following the podcast, uh, then you know we're huge Last Starfighter fans. If you haven't been following the podcast, first of all, welcome. You're a starfighter. You've been recruited by Star League, or I guess you volunteered. <laughs> like, that is, we we did that episode um, about a, a year and a half ago. We did a episode on The Last Starfighter and discussed all the, the possibilities. And I don't know, there could be something. And it's it's funny because we, we talk about how, you know, the a new a new interpretation or a new addition to, you know, something building off of a, a film or a, an IP, an intellectual property that yeah. we grew up with doesn't necessarily ruin your childhood but i when it comes to something like the last starfighter i get very like nervous excited because it's kind of like if it's not the right thing 
Well, this is something that is being brought to life by the writer of Rogue One, which it's towards the top of my favorite Star Wars movies yes. list. Like yes. I know, Dan, that you certainly are an you know original trilogy enthusiast, and I I am too, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, but I think that Rogue One sits up there among those three as being just like a truly fantastic everything about it's just really beautiful and here's where i'm and and where i'm optimistic is that rogue one did a wonderful job of capturing the spirit of the original trilogy without being like kind of derivative fan service yeah. which is what i found a lot of the the prequels and and the sequels to be the sequels. Say, I think feel like Last Jedi is kind of the the outlier where, um, you know, whereas I felt like Force Awakens, uh, and for definitely Force Awakens, but to an extent Rise of Skywalker, were doing a lot of catering to fans and a lot of yeah, a lot of references, a lot of nudge nudge wink wink stuff. Whereas the Last Jedi, uh, really kind of did its own thing and and in i mean in fact according to some fans you know went against i guess what they had built up in their mind as yeah. like the well, the meaning um well i don't care you know whatever happens with the last starfighter i'm excited about but it but that it's gary, and, gary witta the screenwriter yeah. of rogue one and that he is in that he's the one who's doing this gives me a l- I trust little him. more hope yes yes yeah. There is hope. A new hope, if you will. Oh, boy. Okay. So, Dan, let's talk a little bit about spaghetti westerns. Dan, are you a big fan of westerns in general? I've I've had a complicated relationship with westerns. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, it's not that complicated. It's really, it, I, westerns are a genre that I, possibly more than any other genre, I really want to like more than I do. Yeah. Like I love the idea of, of kicking back and watching a Western and particularly the Westerns that were made in uh, the, in the 1960s and seventies, they just are, are, and well, I mean, like we're going to talk about this with good, the bad and the ugly, because it's just a beautiful film, but these movies that were created at at a different time and the spaghetti westerns particularly that were filmed outside of the that were made by italian filmmakers and filmed in yeah. uh i mean good bad and the ugly was filmed mostly in spain but mostly in spain right filmed in europe where there was perhaps more of this land available to shoot on and to believably be you know the old west like i think good the bad and the ugly is mostly set uh, within around texas it's uh, yeah, kinda, I I can't remember exactly. It, yeah, and it's a it's, little tough to. Yeah, sure. It's also important to note that it takes place right in the middle of the Civil War, and what I wasn't expecting was uh, how heavily the Civil War played into this, and you know, especially coming from a an Italian filmmaker how much of, you know, American history. And, you know, it was at this point only a hundred years in the future. It seems so much, much further in the, in the past than that, even though, you know, the civil war, it wasn't all that long ago. And, 
you know, and I don't know, like just thinking about how at that time there were still people probably there could have been people alive who were around during the civil war or, you know, I mean, they'd be very young at the time, but I don't know. It's, it's just like a little bit more recent and just, but just the idea that they're covering so much American political, like it's almost like, and I wouldn't say it's an allegory, but you know, they're tying in the, the whole struggle between the union and the Confederate armies into this story about these three bad dudes. Well, at least one of them is bad. The other is good and the other is ugly. I mean, they're all... I'm going to go and venture to say they're all pretty bad. They're all, I mean, yeah, hey, that's why they call the game Bad Dudes. Uh, so, uh, sorry, Parenthood. Um, uh, yeah, so I, one thing I had not... So I had seen, like part of this movie before but had never actually had never seen the entire movie did not realize how much of a role the civil war would play in it and i this is what what kind of sets it apart so like a lot of westerns that are that are great westerns it revolves around a personal conflict something that is is brewing and uh Mm -hmm. you know everything from high noon tombstone uh, young yeah. young guns i mean there's and i know there's a lot of other westerns i'm not thinking about. i haven't like i haven't seen a lot of the classic westerns i'm working neither have i this is a this is a genre that i'm very unfamiliar with and i was very nervous coming into the good the bad and the ugly i mean i started it one night saw that it was three hours long and was like i need to say this for uh, I need to save it for a night for the next night and better prepare myself for a three hour movie where, you know, the dialogue is in some cases dubbed. Well, I think it's all 80 yard at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, so it's like things just, I'm going to have to concentrate a lot harder. I turned the captions on because I didn't want to miss anything and I wanted to be forced to like, read it and so to better retain it because i was like i know this is going to be a slow burn of a movie with some like peaks here and there but like i was wondering at the end if i even really needed to work to concentrate that hard because it was riveting it is for such a sprawling film and it's the setup is so simple but it's really it's so not about what it's about you know, these three guys yeah, looking so, for gold. <laughs> well, let's get let's get yeah. into that a little bit. All right. So a hitman known as Angel Eyes is on a hunt to recover a large sum of money and learns that the man who knows the location is going by the name Bill Carson. Angel Eyes runs in a similar circle with two other men of questionable integrity, a known felon named Tuco and an unnamed gunslinging part-time bounty hunter that is known only to Tuco as Blondie. Blondie and Tuco are running a grift in which Blondie captures Tuco and delivers him to a small-town sheriff to collect the bounty. When Tuco is about to be hung, Blondie shoots the noose from afar as well as the hats off of anyone nearby. The two disappear and split the bounty amongst themselves and watch it rise. At a certain point, Blondie decides to cut ties with Tuco and leaves him high and dry in the desert. Tuco manages to make it to a small town, gets himself a gun, and hunts down Blondie for revenge. 
After torturing him for a few dehydrated days, they encounter a group of injured Confederate soldiers. One of them happens to be the man going by Bill Carson. With some of his final breaths, he tells Tuco the location of $200,000 that he buried in a graveyard. But then, he manages to tell Blondie the name of the grave in which the money is buried. Now that Tuco and Blondie are again reliant on one another, they travel to the location that only Tuco knows, disguised as Confederate soldiers, Tuco specifically as Bill Carson. After they mistake a group of approaching travelers as Confederate soldiers, they proudly display their new duds. What they don't realize is that they're simply Union soldiers covered in dirt. Blondie and Tuco are captured and delivered to a prisoner holding area patrolled by none other than Angel Eyes, likely waiting for the day when Bill Carson is captured. He recognizes Tuco and Blondie and discovers that Tuco has assumed Bill Carson's identity, so he makes a meal out of torturing him to get information. Tuco ends up spilling the beans about the location, but rats Blondie out as knowing the name on the grave. Tuco and Blondie manage to escape, and the three are now all in a race to the cemetery. Blondie and Tuco meet one major obstacle. The one bridge that leads them to the finish line is stationed with Union and Confederate soldiers, each with the goal of keeping the bridge intact, much to the chagrin of the Union captain they befriend. After the captain is shot in battle, Tuco and Blondie blow up the bridge so the war can move on. This leads to an iconic three-way shootout between Angel Eyes, Blondie, and Tuco. So, Clint Eastwood plays Blondie, or the man with no name. We've got Lee Van Cleef as Angel Eyes and Eli Wallach as Tuco. And the three of them, I, I mean, I gotta say, like, I, Eli Wallach is absolutely incredible. And Lee Van Cleef, he's he's great too. I I do have problems with Clint Eastwood. But oh. I felt like <laughs> I thought you what? were going to say you had problems with the Jewish actor from Brooklyn playing a Mexican bandit. But look, we just have to understand that we're, we're acknowledging that that's, happened. That's, that's the acknowledgement. We are acknowledging yeah. it. And, uh, you know, uh, we could go back to the party to talk about that uh, with with Peter Sellers. Yes. But but regardless, Eli Wallach is. Yes, he's he's brilliant in this um but he he is he is you know if one if you just look past that aspect of it yes my so just my issues with Clint Eastwood and I feel like he's good in this because I feel like with him the less he can speak the better because the more he starts talking the less I can really I don't know sit with his character as a character I don't know I don't think he's a very good actor I was just watching uh, In the Line of Fire, and I was like, oh, it's so painful to watch him, like, try to be, like, a romantic lead and joke around with people. Like, it can be kind of difficult. Yeah, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's hit or miss. I do think that in this movie, it's... Uh, you know, he's strong because he doesn't say much. And Clint Eastwood is at his exactly. best. His introduction, his, his the, when we first meet him in this, it is so awesome. And you're just like, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as like, you know, he says his first line, you don't even see his, his face. And you're just like, oh, it's about to go yeah, down. Yeah, well, why don't we play yes. that? Why don't we play that clip that I titled uh, in my, my notes here, Clintro. And um, so this is uh, the first time where we see Tuco is be is trying to be captured by these 
other bounty hunters. He's wanted. And then Tuco is wanted. He is a wanted There's a price very on his head. So. Hey, amigo, you know you've got a face beautiful enough to be worth $2,000? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you don't look like the one who collected. Couple steps back. And there's that iconic, iconic, I mean, iconic score. That music is it's part of the zeitgeist. It's whenever there's that type of, of showdown in almost any anything uh where there's a uh you know type of any type of like old west stand. I think even in one of the police academies, there's a part where oh, like where Michael Winslow course. does the you know, the good, the bad, sure. and the ugly. Uh, yeah, uh, so this actually watching this movie brought back like a memory for me and uh, this maybe this was something that you had that like I borrowed, but I remember listening to a tape of just a compilation of famous movie scores because like there were I, I don't remember like where I got this but i just remember like listening to it like laying in bed listening because there were parts of the score where it's like just listening to the whole thing in its entirety where it's like i don't know where else i would have just like listened to this entire thing and it just kind of came back to me a little bit could very well have been a mixtape made back who's in the putting day that on a mixtape me <laughs> like me in i don't know i feel like there was, some, was there danny elfman on there uh <laughs> look Probably. I mean, Maybe it was. I don't know. There you go. If it had the Raiders March, if it had I remember I had I don't think I, I don't think Good the Bad and the Ugly was on it, but I had like I had a mixtape. It had like it had the music from Driving Miss Daisy on it. Uh <laughs> oh yeah, because I made it I made it for the car. And <laughs> Oh my god. Um so Wow. <laughs> this was a long time ago. Okay. Long time ago. Um so First of all, Ennio Morricone is a uh, is is yes. a genius. Pour one out. Yeah. Um, have you se- have you ever seen Once Upon a Time in the West? Uh, I don't think so. It's uh, so Leone made that after after this, I believe. Okay. Um, and it starred Henry Fonda in a role. It was kind of similar to the Lee Van Cleef role. Mm. I mean, he, although he was much more of like the bad guy, he was an assassin who was hired by like the, the railroad baron, uh, to, you know, basically in get rid of any, any, like, you know, if anyone was in the way of the, of where the railroad was going to go, uh, you know, it was his job hmm. to kind of take, take care of him. Uh, Got and, it. and, uh, it was like Charles Bronson is is in it it's henry fonda charles bronson oh and jason robards huh so yeah it's uh, claudia cardinal is in it as well and um i watched that not too long ago that's another one that i had seen 
parts of, or I'd just seen the beginning of it and something and like, I don't know, I guess it's a three hour movie and it's a Western and these movies move his uh, Leone. And I'm, I'm, you know, far from uh, an expert in his movies, but uh, this once upon a time in the West, once upon a time in America, Mm -hmm. they are sprawling stories and they, what I found after watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was I was like, this movie goes over three hours, but there wasn't anything I would have cut. And everything that happens is either it's progressing the action. It's showing you more about the characters. And and I think maybe that's where I, I'm I'm seeing that, like, the, you know, the issue with with Clint Eastwood in the movie is because he has the least. Like his character has like the least stake. We don't know much about his character. Yeah, I think that the the pr- one problem that I have is that I think that the reason why we really root for him, and if we're going back in time to when this movie came out, I mean, this is part of the you know the fistful of dollars like trilogy, and. Uh, What's that? I was I was putting trilogy in quotes because trilogy in yeah, quotes. It's not right. It's, yeah, they're they're in the same family. They're, they're three not, westerns yeah. with the same director and and same star that I guess are kind of similar. And I don't think he's technically playing the same character, but I guess I guess the well, idea is you can't no, tell. He, I think he is. He's the man with no name. And according to IMDb trivia, the the poncho that he wears is one that he wears in all of them. So. Uh, although it doesn't make its appearance until but the end of... He also wears it in other movies that have nothing to do with this one, I think uh, I read. Who knows? Yeah. Whatever. So, uh, and, and you know, before that, he was on Rawhide. Uh, you know, he really... I think he wore it in the Bridges know, of Madison County. <laughs> um, so, uh, where was I going with this? I think we were still talking about East Eastwood... Um, Eastwood's oh yeah you know it's just like all right so I think that the whole reason why we think that he's the person that we're rooting for is because we're told at the beginning that he is the good and you know it's literally written under his face when we see him it says the good and you know who's the ugly and you know who's the bad the bad being angel eyes and the ugly being Tuco and I mean I I think that they're all pretty bad there's you know they're just kind of always grifting and stabbing each other in the back yeah it's hard to not root for tuco and i think that's because you find out the most about tuco which could also be that yeah. eli well eli it's it, it's appropriate that eli wallach has the bulk of of the dialogue yeah and oh he's tremendous he's got that great the scene, scene Oh, which scene? With his brother? Yes, the scene with the brother, yeah. Yeah, his brother who became a priest and has a little camp set up for injured He's the mission at San soldiers. Antonio. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, they take people from both sides of the war and fix them up, and that's how they rehydrate <laughs> uh, the man with no name, Blondie, and um, kind of keep him for a few days and... It, it's funny. Yeah, it's their interaction about being brothers and, 
the the one becoming a priest so he could run away from like the problems like it's such a awesome scene like it's, it's it was complex. unexpected yeah it was i did not see it coming and it, i'm so glad it did and that's what i'm saying is and that's like i mean what like two hours into the movie or something and or beyond two hours i think into the movie and it's like we're still learning things and we're still developing and it's the type of character development that I think would just be truncated and and rushed in most other in most other films yeah. or just not or just not like not done. Uh, yeah. But like it, I, he builds and I am I I guess if I had any qualm, it's that the other characters aren't as I don't know, I guess sympathetic. And even though you're rooting for Blondie. And you're, you know, whatever, amused by by Tuco and you don't hate him. It's almost like that shootout at the end, which I was in awe of. Oh, yeah. It stands the test of time. It it stands the test of time while you're sitting there watching it. And it goes like it goes on. And yeah, it feels real. it, It feels real. But the other thing is that, like, you know, because we know what kind of movie this is, we know who's going to walk away the victor. You know, it's not like there's going to be some big surprise. And, you know, we'll just spoiler if you haven't seen it. But, you know, Blondie shoots Angel Eyes dead and doesn't he know he's no one else knows that Tuco's gun has no bullets in it because Blondie removed them. So what Blondie does is he ties a noose to a tree and has Tuco stand on a grave, uh, like I'd say gravestone. It's not a stone. It's a wooden cross. It's not a stone. It's it's yeah, it's a cross made of two pieces of wood. And uh, yeah, and just kind of like rides away and then eventually shoots the rope down, just kind of like leaving Tuco there. And I'm I'm sorry if you covered this in the synopsis, but that's actually that's their uh, that's what uh, Tuco and and Blondie kind of that's their little hustle that they're running towards the yeah, beginning of the movie. Okay, yeah, um, I did mention that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really cool that it comes back to that. It closes on that, and the shootout. There's so many things about it. And it's like yes, you know, Blondie is going to is going to win, but. You don't yeah. know that he's going to spare Tuco. No, that's true. That's you true. don't know. Um, you don't know. He that also a- leaves Tuco half of the money. Yeah, he leaves. Yeah, half and half. Uh, I guess that's what makes him the good. Yeah, you know. I mean, he's ultimately not completely rotten. Right. Right. And it ends with with Eli Wallach watching Clint Eastwood riding away. And he's screaming like Blondie. And do you have that clip? <laughs> yeah. Blondie. So I don't remember exactly. Yeah. So this one will start where he's got the noose around his neck and uh, and and Blondie has kind of ridden off a little bit. And in uh, some of the clips that I grabbed for this, I did take out some of the times, like the some of the gaps where there's just atmosphere yeah uh unless it has to do with keeping the music fresh but uh 
this one begins where he's already got the noose around his neck. Hey, Sorry, Duke. I love they start with the drum. And it gets louder and louder. Yeah. Oh, what's your favorite new wave band? Bond! And and you just see his feet on the on the tombstone in quotes, just kind of like losing itself and yeah. Hey, what's your favorite old school comic strip? Bond! What type of baked good do you prefer, a brownie or a... I love the, just the, the build of the mu- oh. Feel his, uh, you feel for Tuco. Oh, yeah. Blondie! The drums come back in. Blondie! So at this point, Blondie's got the gun and he's aiming it. I love it. You don't know. Yeah. You just, you don't know. It's so good. Oh, delicious is such a great way of putting it because I think, especially like if you love, if you are a film, if you are a lover and appreciator of film and of the art, like the artistry that goes into filmmaking from the cinematography, I mean, I'm streaming it. I'm I'm streaming this, you know, like in I don't I'm not watching it on Blu-ray or 4K or anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, streaming it on a on a small TV and I'm just like my jaw is dropped <laughs> because it just looks so beautiful. 
I mean, just listening to it just now and feeling the atmosphere through the sound design with the, you know, you hear some crickets, you hear the wind, you hear his feet on that wooden cross, you hear the rope around his neck, you hear it tightening, you hear him struggling, you feel, you hear the despair in his voice, and then you hear the gunshot. And as we know, he shoots the rope and not Tuco himself, which we don't, you know, we're kind of left wondering what's going to happen. And... You know, he falls face first into $100,000, which, I mean, if you think about the equivalent, that's like a few million dollars. That would be, that's what that would be like these days. So it's like, but he's got, these things are heavy bags of coins. (laughs) He's got no horse. He's got no bridge he can cross anymore because he blew it up. You know, he's just out on his own in a cemetery and... Uh, but that seems to be par yeah. for the course for Tuco is it's kind of like he's he's it's step by step like, all right, how am I going to get it? when we first meet him? What the three guys go into the into that bar or oh, the yeah. saloon. Uh, and I'm not sure if they're like coming to get Tuco, but that's what I figured since yeah. he crashes out of the window. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. he doesn't kill them all, but uh like we know he's fast. Well, let's let's listen to Tuco's monologue and this is after he has several he has separated ways with the man with no name and he's which is essentially like left for dead in the middle of a desert 70 miles away from the nearest town and he like manages to make it to the small town. He goes straight to a gun shop and uh, steals uh, like Frankenstein gun that he creates there from the old <laughs> shop owner and like makes a mockery of him. It's like, really, that's what, that's the first thing you're going to do. <laughs> it's I, just like, <laughs> and I read, and uh, you probably read the same thing, but uh, Eli Wallach like improvised all the stuff he did with the guns. Yeah. In that scene. Crazy. And like, he sticks like the, the, like, you know, sh- open and closed sign and yeah. then puts it in the guy's mouth and, <laughs> It's so bizarre. Really is. But man, just gives me a lot of respect because I'm thinking about. And I was thinking about this is also a scene where there's very little dialogue. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in this movie. I and I, I, I appreciate it, not just because the more dialogue, the, you know, more dialogue exposes Clint Eastwood, but as a, (laughs) you know, in his acting. Um, I don't know. It just like it let it's like. There's no dialogue, but the music and even the cinematography are speaking. Oh, yeah. And now let's go to this moment right after that where he is in this kind of like weird area and he's got just like a dead like ruin with him. He's like he. Yeah, yeah, it's basically ruins. Yeah. So let's listen to that for for a minute. If you work for a living. Why do you kill yourself working? (laughs) Potatoes. You've got to be poor to eat potatoes. (laughs) 
really poor. I'm rich, but I'm lonely. The world is divided into two parts. Those who have friends and those who are lonely like Potuko. You see, I used to have a friend, Pedro, Chico and Ramon, his two brothers were my friends too. But who knows where they are now? That's too bad, friends. Tough luck I haven't found you. I had a good deal for you. There's a big son of a bitch who's got $4,000. $4,000. And I know where to find it. If they would help me catch him, I divide it four ways, like a brother. A thousand dollars each, hmm? Hmm. <laughs> You're alive, Duco. Is it true? Rich, like you're going to be. But people are saying you got killed in Albuquerque. And people talk bullshit. <laughs> I'm alive, you bastards, and I always will be. And I've come to give you $3,000. Vamos. Oh, man. Yeah, so, um... It's so good. I love that that monologue and it really gives him an opportunity like Leone knew where like, you know, who it was that was going to give audiences the dialogue yeah. that they wanted. And he had he just had the right the right player um, in the form of of Eli Wallach. So I, I actually wanted to share uh, something that it sums it up. So I was looking at the Spaghetti Western database um, okay. Spaghetti dash Western. Spaghetti dash Western dot net. And I, I have to say, like, this really phrases it well. So I'm just going to read this, excuse me, this paragraph. Um, with good, the bad, and the ugly, Leone has finally mastered his technique. He slows the pace even more so than in for a few dollars more. But the quietness and suspicion that he so skillfully films before his shootouts is far more exciting and spectacular than any action scene. Just the way the act, the, just the way the characters move and how they act is so beautiful. But his action comes swift and quick and is far less amazing than the buildup. Beg to differ slightly there. Uh, but the shootings are the final act to every one of these great moments. The camera work in this film can be seen in all his other films. He mastered the crane shot. Um, he's talking about back... And it goes on to talk about background action... And mm -hmm. and how it says the plot deals with a gold hunt, but in between this, he films an entire civil war. Yeah. And that's another thing that I wanted to come back to is how they portray not just the civil war, but war 
and how like the scene where the um where they see the soldiers coming and they think it's the confederates uh but it's really just union uniforms covered in dust yeah. is so symbolic and it's so it's meaningful or gray and it's like it, when you're covered in dust what does it matter when you're covered in you know gunpowder and ash it's all the same and i think that what and and maybe this is because we because it's an italian director um i feel like you'd get that type of treatment now the kind of i don't want to call it both sides uh but oh, the mm-hmm. but the you know the acknowledgement that the soldiers even for the opposing ar- army are still people they're still yeah humans and when it comes down to it individually, you know, we have a lot of the same values. And mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting because I feel like th- at that point in time, uh, you know, like you were saying, the Civil War is still relatively fresh, you know, just a hundred years gone by. Yeah. And I don't think you're going to get, you're not going to get that portrayal. I mean, unless it's like, Birth of the Nation about how awesome the <laughs> KKK is. Um, in the movie, not our opinions. Yeah, no, no, no. In, in, in D.W. Griffith's uh, opinion. Uh, so it, I thought that the portrayal, and I, I really loved this. I really, lo- another uh, scene where dialogue is is important is when they they meet this captain. Yes. So this is towards the end, right before they get to the cemetery and they are they they know that they're so super close they just need to cross this bridge and then they encounter a battleground they just walk right into it they walk like right into the camp it's kind of amazing how it's just like oh and this is all just right here Tuco's like, let's see what's way, over this way and yeah and also yeah uh i i'll just play the audio from it but like i love the thing that this is a union captain and uh, I love the things that he has to say. I think he's a really fun character. I'm not saying that uh, I want to remake this movie and cast a present day actor, but I got real big George Clooney vibes from him. Oh, okay. Why? What were you going to say? I got. I thought you were going to Oscar Isaac because I got some Oscar Isaac vibes from him. Okay. Okay. I'm just that <laughs> okay. like weary, you know... Well, you play the clip. Well, let's listen, yeah. let's listen to it really quick. You be the judge. Hey. <laughs> Whoever has the most liquor to get the soldiers drunk and send them to be slaughtered is the winner. <laughs> we and the ones over on the other side of the river only have one thing in common. All of us rig alcohol. What did you say your name was? Uh, uh, and you? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, names don't matter. Yes, because soon you can join the gallon of heroes for Branson Bridge. <laughs> we have two attacks a day. Two attacks a day? Sure. The Rebs have decided that damn bridge is the key to this whole area. Stupid, useless bridge. Flashback on headquarters maps. 
the headquarters has declared we must take that ridiculous fly speck. <laughs> Even if all of us are killed. Otherwise, the key will get rusty and just be a spot on a wall. <laughs> and that's not all. Both sides want the bridge intact. Intact is how the South wants it. And we want it intact, too. You're all turned to dust. But one thing is sure, boys. Breath and bridge will stand unbroken. Is it bad to speak the way I do to volunteers? <laughs> I've done a lot worse. <laughs> I've done it. I've blown it up. Boom! <laughs> In here, I've destroyed it all. It's a court-martial offense to imagine to dream of blowing it up. A serious crime. Even to think of destroying that bridge is just... <clears throat> Why not really blow it up, Captain? Yeah, Captain, it's nothing. Let's get the hell out of them. <laughs> I've been dreaming about it. <laughs> I've even worked out a plan. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I sure have. The best time is after the attack, when there's a truce to get the wounded. <laughs> if I could do it, I could save many thousands of men. But what I like is the guts. The beginning, the daily slaughter, right on time. Captain, all companies are waiting your orders. Yeah. Be right there. Uh. He's, it's, I love how this character pops up, you know, a, a half hour before the end of the movie. Yeah. And he's just got these, like, almost Shakespearean lines like uh they started the daily slaughter begins the daily slaughter is right on time yeah he's so great um and uh, by the time but so and then uh of course blondie and and tuco blow up the bridge and it's kind of this fun it's almost this fun little sequence when they're just like yeah where they're just like get don't die yet you're gonna love this and like yeah. they're just they're kind of like no one's paying attention to us no one's noticing us with these explosives i know it felt yeah, like and they really yeah it felt Go like it, it felt like and i wonder if the, if there was any if intentionality in this but it felt like like a knight on a like knight a knight and his squire and they're on a quest and it's kind of like when knights go on quests and uh, like if you read the Arthurian legends, when knights were on quests, you know, they'd have this one thing, you know, whether I'm going to find the Holy Grail or whatever. Uh, but along the way, they would get into other little adventures, other little, you know, side things. So it's it's kind of like if it was a series, it, like every episode, it'd be like, oh, well, I'm just, oh, I can't wait to get to this town and relax. And next thing you know, he's I don't know, solving a mystery. Uh, <laughs> you know, do you know uh, fighting a dragon? What that's. You know what the scene reminded me of? What? Wayne's World 2, the gas station attendant. <laughs> Cooper Street. <laughs> I once knew a girl who lived on Cooper Street. Oh, God. <laughs> Charlton Heston. Can't we get a better actor? 
Oh, and they bring in Charlton Heston. <laughs> they bring yeah. in Charlton Heston. Yes. Anyway, that's what that reminds me of because it's just like, like you said, it's right before the like huge famous ending of a. Mo- I mean, they didn't know huge famous at the time, but like this huge ending of a movie, and you have this very dramatic character just come up out of nowhere and just like totally, you know, take you on a journey before going back to like the rest of the the a plot of the movie and there's so much meaning there's all this like i don't know i think it's i i love just the whole thing about like you know there's one thing that that both sides have in common we all reek of alcohol because everyone's just got to get drunk enough to to do this and i feel like that yeah but and that i mean like i don't know i i have not studied the civil war enough to know this but like that sounds legit (laughs) <laughs> or that like right it makes so much and also, sense and also i love what he says it's just like you know this is something that even just talking about it i could get court-martialed and i know everything i would do on how to do it all i like all i lack is the guts and well, it's just like and you know it's like uh he could end this battle and save lives on both sides just by blowing up the bridge. But he's too afraid of being, you know, court-martialed. And to add to that, it's also like, you know, it's commenting, uh, it's really a comment on how like headquarters makes the decisions and like just this vague, you know, well, headquarters wants the bridge to stay and like there's not even like general grant wants the bridge to stay or you know and it's so disconnected and it what what this movie points out in this scene and in other scenes is how soldiers in a war or at least maybe in the civil war and at least maybe at this point in the civil war maybe they don't it what do they have that's personally invested in it other than just and and at what point you know like at i i feel like at first you go in with you know a lot of motivation and um you know patri- you know true patriotism but you get the sense that these guys have just like been in it so long where it's like what are we even what is happening where they they're not making their own decisions and they're dying for it and it's like well this the the headquarters wants this bridge to stay up, so it doesn't matter how many of us get killed. Uh, the bridge needs to stay up, and it it puts the violence in a perspective because you have the violence of uh, you have kind of the um, you know gun for hire violence of angel eyes. You know when I whenever I get paid for a job, I see it through, and that's yeah. his excuse for killing everybody. Um, like it really like coldly killing people like the violence, like their violence, their kind of outlaw violence, whereas it makes more sense, you know, mm-hmm. like even if it, you know, to find money in that time meant a huge difference, especially to, to someone like Tuco. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's it puts the violence like the violence that we see as like these criminals is some seems so much more justified than the violence that's done in the name of you know the the, the government wearing the uniform of 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 the government or of the rebellion right. or the insurrectionists well i mean 
And that's why you get these two people coming through who aren't on either side. They're essentially libertarians who come in and, you know, do what neither of the other ones can do. I am not saying my stance on libertarians by saying that, by the way. No, but these guys, they have nothing invested in. They're not. It's no, not their. See, yeah. They live on the outskirts of anything that anybody would call society at the time. I feel like for Tuco, his life is defined by the hunt. I mean, what's he going to do with all that money? He's not going to just settle down. He's going to. That's that you know, was a question I have is like, is Tuco going to stop? He's not going he to gonna stop eat, stealing stuff. He's got to keep hustling. No, it's in his nature to keep on running these grifts and, you know, trying to find the next big thing. And I, I don't know if he would know what to do with it once he actually. Like I, if we were to see what happens the next day. Oh, like I see where you're going with, with this dirty, rotten scoundrels. But with Tuco uh, <laughs> in the it's like 10 years later, Tuco's like in the Michael Caine role. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I know we could talk a lot more, but we're coming up on an hour and I want to, you know, make sure that we move forward without um, driving people crazy, just theorizing about. The Civil War and things that we no, but are this, less knowledgeable about. Exactly, exactly. But the, I think yeah. the, the point is, is that this movie really does have masterful storytelling and it's about a lot more than the the basic plot. It's about a lot more than three guys looking for money. No. It, it says a lot. And you also see uh, one... I, last uh, comment slash connection here um, is with the the westerns of Quentin Tarantino, which scored by I, Ennio Morricone. Yes. Well, first of all, we it would be impossible to do this episode of that talking about Quentin Tarantino it, because you know, of course, I'm watching it and watching it for this podcast. I'm thinking like, all right, what could happen if there was any type of thing? And it's just like, well, can't you know, the only person who would do something like this is Quentin Tarantino, but that's because he has done this. Like every one of his, almost every one of his movies touches on something that you see in this. And, right. uh, yeah. It, it made me think of, of uh, I mean, especially, of course, H Hateful Eight and Django Unchained, which are both long movies. Yeah. And I was thinking about Hateful Eight, which I really like. I saw it in the theater um, mm -hmm. back when we could do such things. And yeah. I remember, I, I, yeah, I, I saw that in in the theater and have watched it since i've watched you know the extended version on on netflix and as much as i like it because i'm a fan of quentin tarantino and i'm a fan of the people the entire cast i'm a fan of the entire cast it doesn't really go anywhere like i know that there's it's like not my favorite story. i i like it but it's not my favorite i i really would have liked to have seen uh, more and it could have been done in flashback, but it didn't like, whereas this is a movie that it takes its time, but it feels organic and it feels natural that the story and the characters progress as they do. It, it moves. It doesn't stand still. Whereas hateful eight, I felt took all the time, but kind of stood still. Yeah. Django unchained. 
Django Unchained is a thrill ride. I think, and I feel like Django Unchained could have even maybe like slow, slowed down a tiny bit. And like, maybe. I love it. Yes. But I, yeah. I want to watch it again. I, I absolutely love it. It's great. And, and also, you know, the very first scene of um, Good and Bad, the Ugly, you know, with Angel Eyes. It reminds me a lot of the first scene in, in Glorious Bastards where Christoph Waltz is uh, going to the house where he's trying to find, you know, yes. hidden Jews. And, you know, he's, you know, sitting down and, you know, it's got a very similar vibe to that. And uh, that giant pipe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, there were a lot of moments where I just saw things happening in, in other Tarantino movies, you know, even thinking about. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like the Spawn Ranch stuff, Mm. you know, there's a lot of that very like slow, quiet, atmospheric, uh, those moments. And then it, of course, culminates in a fight. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of that Sergio like Leone whole standoff type of feeling with between that. Brad Pitt exactly. and the Manson family. And and yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's not a coincidence that it's called Once Upon a Time dot dot Absolutely. dot. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so, all right. We're not going to be doing a Tarantino remake of this movie because no. he has <laughs> he has done he has done what he has to do. So, Dan, what are you thinking? First of all. I want to go on like a, I want to on a Sunday. I want to go on a Sunday to a big I want to go to like Cinerama. I want to go to a theater just with a giant screen and amazing projection and I want to see this movie on the big screen. And I just I like mm-hmm. I just want it to be like I want a day off from any other responsibilities and <laughs> I just want to like go in have a beer, get some nachos, and I don't know why I've never get nachos at the movies. I don't know why that came out of nowhere. I was gonna say, I was like, you're a nachos at the movies guy. Interesting. No, 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 no. Straight up popcorn, occasionally an M&M. But like I would I took a picture of this. It's in my notes, like the cemetery scene, uh, or the the shootout when they're all there's like this long shot of the three of them, and you just they're surrounded by all the grave markers. And it's I'm like, my God, this is beautiful on like this little like TV I have in the office. I want to see this on like this big fucking screen where I have to like, you know, I have to move my head to look from one end to the other. So first of all, there's that. And also, by the way, I I just noticed I just saw an ad uh, pop up. uh, um, But the uh, 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray of good the bad and the ugly is coming out on april 27th so oh okay <laughs> so th- there there we go i mean i don't I, i'm like this thing looked beautiful the way i saw yeah. it so yeah. uh but yeah i yeah i so there there's that i mean i guess yeah tarantino has done it most recently but I don't know. I think I would want someone that's. I, I think I would. I would want to see a western, like not remaking this, mm-hmm. but doing something similar, but not like take out the Tarantino 
element, the Tarantino DNA, and just okay. and and really give us the, you know, whatever filmmaker is going to make it, like what's the Western that that filmmaker would have made in 1966? Sure, yeah. And I don't know who that would be. I don't know who, you know, has that, you know, that sense, that eye, that that love, that feel for this. But I I mean, I wouldn't do a, a, like a straight up remake, but... I don't know. Like it, it, it would have to be really well. It, it would, like. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell what, you what, what I'm thinking, thinking here, John. Because uh, yeah. okay, thinking about westerns that have come out in the past, I don't know, a couple decades, and the ones that stick out to me, which I think that the ones that I I've seen and liked the best have actually been remakes. I love the 310 to Yuma remake. The True yeah. Grit remake is great. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I feel like Coen Brothers would certainly have a field day with this because there are a lot of really funny moments that you know they've they're so good at doing that with and if you even want to talk about ballad of buster scruggs you know talking about this era as told by the coen brothers they certainly uh have not shied away from touching that subject but i feel like for me there were so many characters that i would have liked to have seen more of i think it'd be really fascinating to see a movie that is based on that Union Army captain. Uh, you know, how does he get involved with his military service? What 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 does happen leading up to this battle at this bridge? Um, I think it'd also be really fascinating because we go into this movie just knowing that Tuco has a huge backstory. He has wives all over the place that he's abandoned like he's clearly wanted all over the place and the price on his head keeps on going up and up and up i'd love to know more about i'd love to live more in that the early tuco moments where maybe he does have a conflict of character where he does consider you know it's like ah, i'm finally comfortable i've got you know this wife and this kid and whatever but then like the his instincts drawing him out into like this life of crime. What if and, Tuco like, him was gonna... finding Oh sorry, what? sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just him finding his place and like being a being the ugly. What if he was considering the priesthood? Well, that's another thing, is like seeing how things went with the, the early family life. I I don't Who know. Do you, I, do you have a casting? Do, do you have? A- I don't have a cast. I or any directors or anything. But those are the storylines that I would like to see developed into something new. Would you? I imagine that your casting would be. Uh, you'd cast a Mexican actor. Casting would be nationality appropriate. Yes. Um, I was. Th- I was thinking. I was like, if you did a remake, I'm like. It would be so wrong, but like Paul Giamatti as Tuco. Oh my god! I'm like I, that. I would be that. I'm like I I I wouldn't be okay with it, but I'd be very interested. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Pass on that. No. Um. I mean, I I feel like if if I could think of a director, you know, one movie that I actually did. Well, I, I love the the Desperado. 
Is it a trilogy? Oh, the oh the uh, the mariachi yeah. trilogy, yeah. El mariachi trilogy, yeah. Uh, you know, with, with once I mean, upon I really a time liked in, one, in Mexico. Once upon a time there in Mexico, I really enjoyed. <laughs> And so I feel like Robert Rodriguez would be, I mean, clearly he and Tarantino are, you know, linked to each other yes. in a lot of ways. But, Troublemaker. Uh, oh, that's Robert I think Rodriguez. That, I think that Robert Rodriguez would be a good person to cover this territory. It's been a while since he's done something with this kind of vibe. I, so anyway, I, I if I had be, to pick someone off the top of the dome, you know. I would be really interested to see a... Like Robert Rodriguez, but Robert Rodriguez, like being trying to put himself in the 1960s. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. What was I just thinking of with? And of course, like Danny Trejo would be in it. And Danny Trejo would be in it for sure. I mean, Danny, like I would just have him as, you know, whatever the man with no name. Uh, <laughs> um, But I think Danny Trejo is like. 90 or something it's like when i found out how old he was i was like what well i mean you see pictures from like the early 90s of him and you're just like oh he i feel like looks exactly the same yeah <laughs> something feels very familiar about this yeah um so but anyway been, but, yeah but yeah but the cohen's i was thinking about i was thinking about the cohen's and i think uh the only reason why i didn't go all in on the cohen's was the you know even something like no country for old men which is contemporary yeah. it's still got this western vibe where and it's more along the lines of a once upon a time in america where or not once upon a time in america, once upon a time in the west um where henry fonda's character is like really this like stone cold killer not not nearly uh-huh. as friendo n- not nearly at the level of and of sugar in uh, No Country mm-hmm. for Old Men. But yeah, and uh, Javier you know, Bardem also, would be a good uh, man with no name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and also just thinking about um, Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, Rick Dalton is essentially Clint Eastwood, you know. Was it Bounty Law that he was on, which is like, that's raw hide. And then he goes off to do spaghetti westerns. Yeah. Well, although I feel like he's even more uh, washed up, whereas like Eastwood was. Yeah. He was still pretty fresh. Yeah. 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 But but no, it's it's funny. Yeah. It's it's almost like if we got to see, I guess, a sequel to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that just focuses on, uh, you know, his making spaghetti westerns. <laughs> Uh, Which, by the way, I the term spaghetti western always cracks me up, and like I always I wonder, wonder like, if anyone, what if they? Well, oh, go ahead. What were you gonna say? Does anyone ever find it offensive? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what I was gonna say is, it, you know, what if they hadn't landed on spaghetti and they were called like lasagna western? A lasagna western. I would enjoy that. Yeah, no, a good, a good old, good ravioli western. But you know, I mean, it's. Whoever coined that term, that's a lot of fun. It's, you know, Italian, you know, Westerns made in Italy or I guess made by made it, made, Italian directors. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and and speaking of and I'll just I'll put it out there again. Definitely highly recommend Once Upon a Time in the West. It's just, it's also like early Charles Bronson. I guess I never had really seen uh-huh. Charles Bronson in anything 
much uh and i've been watching like i think it was like the i saw the great escape and yeah and some other things i'm like man charles bronson in the 60s was cool the great like, escape was that his first no i think that might have been one of his first but uh oh, one of his i mean i i've definitely seen death wish i haven't seen any of the canon sequels i haven't canon seen pictures i haven't seen death wish yet i've i saw the mechanic death wish De- Death Wish, the um, I want to say first appearance of Jeff Goldblum on the big screen. I think that's part of it because he plays like a rapist, and I'm yeah. like, I don't want to see rapey Jeff Goldblum. Well, I mean, I have some bad news for you then. Well, Transylvania six five thousand. No, I was gonna say real life. I He's, I have not uh, been on the news today. He is un- no no no. I uh, let's just say he is an overly flirty person to a point where maybe some people have been felt have felt a little uncomfortable. That's oh, all. No. That's all I. I had not say. heard this about Jeff Goldblum. That makes me oh, sad. You know. Yeah. No. Uh. So yeah, Charles Bronson was in stuff. He was in. Oh, let's see. The greatest Kid Galahad with Elvis Presley. In 1962, he was in X-15 in 1961, actually filmed in space, (laughs) A Thunder of Drums. He was on an episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, Okay. So anyway, yeah, but that's Charles Bronson, and he co-stars with Henry Fonda and Jason Robards in Once Upon a Time in the West. Jason Robards. God, just the best. But it's almost like I would be interested to do a film festival of all of the once upon a time ends because they are linked. Like there's a reason why uh, Rodriguez and um, Tarantino have named their films, you know, that once yeah. upon a time in, because the once upon a time in the West is like just this classic um, Western. It's not, I don't like it as much as good, the bad and the ugly. But mm-hmm. th- uh, that was excellent. And then uh, Once Upon a Time in America, I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember that being really, really good. And it's got you know De Niro, James, pre mm-hmm. crazy James Woods. So I do have to uh, mention one problem that I have with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I say this understanding that this was not a thing at the time, but I really want to put a comma before the ugly. Or the, oh, and the ugly. Yeah. There was no Oxford comma at the at that time, but man, oh man, it's, does it feel like I just want to scribble it in there? Because then it's just like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. It's like, the good, <laughs> the bad, and the ugly. The bad I, and the yeah, ugly. I, yeah, no, I, you know what? I, it's, I guess I just hadn't... Uh, I hadn't noticed that, and now I just I'm dropping. Your language this. arts teacher, Dan. Hold on, I need to revise my letterboxed rating. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it, they no, showed... the Oxford comma wasn't a thing at the time. It's okay. All right. It's okay. We're gonna let it go. We're gonna let it go. That's all. But why don't we talk about what we're gonna do on the next episode, <laughs> which is a big swing. Oh, yeah, no. A hard left turn. Yeah, so, no, for our next episode, we are revisiting an early 90s action classic. It's Wham Bam Van Damme, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Jean-Claude Van Damme in (laughs) Double Impact. I am so excited. I can't wait.
<laughs> I literally might go start watching it as soon as we're done. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, I am very, very excited. And, and Dan, as you uh, cling on to the back of a runaway train, I bid you a good journey. Good journey. Yes. Yes, I'm still writing.